0: All right. Yes, may all the young people go to your various classes. Thank you for the reminder. We'll have a little bit more breathing room in here right now. It's, it's packed again this Sunday. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for everyone joining us online too. We, uh, we welcome you. We share this experience with you. Over the past few months or so, I've had the pleasure of meeting up with many of the other men who have been preaching through our series on the Book of Acts these past months. In particular, uh, my brother Leslie Muirhead, he is sitting in the third row right here. He organized a meeting midweek with some of the other speakers, including Nick Oswallo and Stephen McCarga and myself, so that we could uh, meet together and discuss how the topic of discipleship is treated in Acts chapters 19 And 20. So we could be on the same page, so we could teach uh, something that would be complimentary over various weeks. And I had this passage, and I told them, fellas, my passage has nothing to do with discipleship. I'm happy to join you all. I'll discuss with you and pray with you and everything, but there's no need. This passage is uh, is very black and white. It's it's not a, it's not an obscure passage. It's talking about a riot. When Dave Brereton said that this would be a riot, he wasn't kidding. It's really just about some people who are upset and wanted to do a demonstration about how upset they were. There's nothing about uh, discipleship. Paul's not mentioned in this passage. There are no Christians in this passage who speak. I don't know why you want me there. Nobody disagreed with me. Nobody challenged me on it. I attended the meeting. We had a really good time. We prayed together, and I was encouraged. But I didn't leave that meeting convinced any differently. Then came the time for me to actually start preparing, to study the passage, to read it over and over again and ask some some deeper questions. Like, okay, I, I see what's going on, but why is what's happening happening? Who's behind it? What does it all mean? And it didn't take uh, much longer uh, that in the middle of my studies, I took a break to text the other guys this message that you see on the screen, and I said, "Um, I recant my former position. Acts 19 is all about discipleship. And if you were here last week to witness the other five baptisms that took place right on this stage... You might recall that our brother Nick Azuolo, he he shared an anecdote that said that we're likely in our lifetime to potentially encounter and influence up to 80,000 different people in your whole lifetime. And if you're an introvert like me, you still have a chance to influence 10,000 people. Have you ever wondered when it's all said and done What kind of mark you will leave on the world when you're gone? What kind of mark or influence you might have on all these people? It's certainly something that I've thought about a lot in my life. I even thought about this kind of stuff when I was a teenager. This is a picture of my high school yearbook photo. I can't believe I decided to share this. Please do not pay attention to the acne and long hair but rather to this quote that I shared in my yearbook entry. I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but I did. And it it, it stopped laughing. (laughs) No pictures, Stephen. The quote meant a lot to me at the time. It's attributed to someone named Horace Mann. He's a 19th century congressman. He fought tirelessly in his day and age for educational reforms, for the abolition of slavery in the United States, he said these words at a commencement uh, address at, at Antioch College in 1859, and the words that impacted me were, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Now, I wasn't a Christian in this photo at this time. Even before I gave my life to Christ, I could see that the world around me was a place of great hurt and great need and and. I wanted my life, however long it was going to last, to mean something to the people I lived with and I shared the planet with, to be a force for good. And if anything, becoming a Christian only amplified this desire. After all, the Jesus that I discovered in the scriptures, he made such a tangible difference to every single person that he encountered. Jesus healed the sick and he fed the poor. He brought dignity to outcasts. He also taught about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that he would reign in with love and justice and mercy and grace. A kingdom that the Apostle Paul would describe would be a place where one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that kingdom Jesus talked about first appeared after his death and resurrection, but we won't see, we won't experience the fullness of that kingdom until Jesus comes again. And this raises some questions for me. What are we Christians supposed to do between now and then? What power does the gospel have to change our society today? And what part might we have to play in that, if we have a part to play at all? How can we little men and women at Rosemount Bible Church in Montreal possibly hope to influence a world that very rich and very powerful people want to stay exactly the same because it enriches them? These are precisely the kinds of themes that we will encounter in Acts chapter 19. The big idea I want to explore in this passage is that God's Holy Spirit can completely change society. And he can do that through our everyday, ordinary acts of faithfulness in living out the gospel truth. So let's look at our passage today. Let's get a quick grasp of the situation and its context. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 23, or you can just follow along with me. Uh, The text will be on the screen behind me as I read from the New International Version. This is what Dave Barrington meant when he said that it would be a riot. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, we receive a good income from this business. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods of all. There's no danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, that the goddess herself who's worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious. They began shouting over and over again, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, you see, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now, this assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd. He said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down. Calm down. Don't do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. There are pro there. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger right now of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we wouldn't be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. That's our passage, all right? The stage is set, and I mean that literally, the stage is set because the events in today's passage took place on the stage of the great amphitheater of Ephesus, which still stands to this day. You can go visit in the town of Seljuk in Turkey. I'm going to briefly recap what I just said. It's a bit repetitive, so I thought while I do that, it might be helpful to just get immersed a little bit in the real physical history of the Bible. I've got some tourist vid- uh, footage that I found on YouTube here of what the area looks like. And as I recap, you'll, you'll be able to be reminded that what we're reading here aren't myths or fables. These are historical events that actually happened. So, our instigator in this passage is a man named Demetrius. What do we know about him? We know he's a tradesman. We know that he specializes in melting down silver and fashioning it into all kinds of objects. We know that his best-selling objects pay homage to the Greek goddess Artemis, from rings and amulets to idols and shrines. If he could sell it, Demetrius would build it. And business was typically booming, particularly in a city like Ephesus, that was home to the great uh, temple of Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. But business was on a downturn lately. For him, for a lot of the uh, tradespeople who depended on Artemis' worship to line their pockets. It's not because the price of silver went up. It's not because uh, Walmart opened up next door selling cheaper knockoffs. Business was bad because over the last couple of years a lot of people started losing interest in Artemis. They heard that a God fashioned with human hands is no God at all. And so their hearts were turned away from that as they began a new faith in Jesus Christ. Now Demetrius, he's a man of considerable wealth and influence, and he understood how power worked. You see, using his commercial connections, Demetrius gathered a crowd composed at its core of other business people like him. He got that crowd good and emotional by threatening their income, by threatening their way of life. He painted a target on Paul's back. Paul was going to be his scapegoat, the physical scapegoat of all their problems and misfortunes. Demetrius rallied this crowd into a fervor by getting them to repeat that slogan again and again, Great is Demetrius of the Ephesians. Until much of the city was drawn to this crowd. They were drawn around at first because they were curious and then after just because they were confused. And finally, when Demetrius got this crowd as big as it could be and as angry as it could be, he brought them to this place, this great big stage where it wouldn't take much to spark that riot into acts of violence. And all he needed was to bring Paul into this trap. But Paul would never appear. He heard of the riot at the theater, and he wanted to come, but his own disciples and his friends held him back because of the great danger that this would pose to him. And instead, it was, it was a city official, it was a city worker, a clerk, who stood up to the crowd and got them to calm down and disperse. And there's nothing that suggests in our text that the city official was a believer. There's nothing that suggests that he was even acting in Paul's interests or defense. What we are certain of is that the official didn't want this riot to catch the attention of the Roman guards because when they come they're going to crack skulls that's how romans that's how romans operate that's how romans uh, deal out peace so the riot subsides paul soon leaves after for greece and our passage for today draws to a close if you recall the big idea that i said that i saw in this passage it's that's god's holy spirit can make really big change happen in society through our ordinary, everyday faithfulness in living out the gospel truth. Where do I see that in these verses and in this story? We're going to dig deeper into the text now, and we're going to ask some of these deeper questions. We're going to see that this big idea is revealed through Paul's actions. We're going to see that it's revealed through Paul's mission that was given to him by the Lord Jesus then we're going to consider what are the implications for us in our actions, in our mission. So let's start by looking at Paul's actions, decide for ourselves whether he was trying to incite an uprising against Ephesian society and Artemis' worship. Was Paul really blameless? Now, to do that, we need to look at the context of the the entire book of Acts. We're we're starting this midway. Two weeks ago, Brother Stephen McCarg, he preached through the first half of uh, Acts chapter 19. We'll see that Paul spent over two years in the city. Not once did he directly challenge or oppose the many followers of Artemis. You can search the scriptures, but you will not find it. He didn't organize protests. He didn't indoctrinate zealots to destroy property or tear down idols. He didn't try to change the Roman school system so that they would stop teaching this stuff to the kids. He didn't organize an economic lobby to boycott, divest, or sanction Artemis worshipers. So what did Paul do? We go through Acts chapter 19. We see that Paul baptized people in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see that in Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. We see that Paul taught Jews in the synagogue for a period of about three months. For a period of a uh, little more than two years, he taught in, uh, lecture, in Gentile lecture halls, primarily to Gentiles. And the, the scripture even says he held discussions. It wasn't just unilateral talking to people. There was, there was an exchange of ideas that took place there. And Paul performed miracles, which doesn't hurt, I suppose, but he performed miracles as he was doing all these other things. We have to remember, too, that there was a city official who found Paul and his companions blameless. He offered the crowd a legal alternative to accuse them in the courts, and the crowd dispersed. They didn't go to the courts because there's nothing to accuse Paul of. He didn't do anything. And yet, society was changing, big time. In what way was it changing? Well, Stephen preached about that too, two weeks ago. If we look at Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 20, it's described that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of those scrolls, the total came to about 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So you see, Demetrius and the other tradespeople, they were totally right to feel threatened. Because many people were visibly turning from their false gods, from their pagan practices, while embracing a new faith and understanding in Jesus Christ. Hearts were changing in large numbers. This was not a revolution. This was a revival, a changing of hearts. The Holy Spirit creates major social change through revival, not through revolution. These false idols were destroyed as acts of personal repentance, not as acts of public vandalism and all of Paul's activities that we discussed here are consistent with the mission that was given to him by Jesus himself. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord called to a disciple named Ananias, and he gave Ananias this message. In Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, Jesus told him, This man, Paul, he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul later echoes this mission in Romans 15, 20. He says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. And again, in Colossians chapter 1:28, he writes, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may pre- present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's mission informed how he would minister to the places that he visited. What about you and me? Do we have a mission? The answer is yes. Alessandro is right. We do have a mission. Maybe by, we, uh, by better understanding the mission that we have, we can get a sense of how we might actually be influencing these 80,000 people that we will encounter in our lives, or for us introverts, 10,000. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 28. This passage takes us to the very end of Matthew's gospel story. At this point in his story, Jesus has already died and he's risen again, so the world is a buzz. Jesus' disciples meet up at a mountain in Galilee where before being crucified, Jesus told them to meet and wait for him there. And starting at verse 17, Jesus finally shows up. And when the disciples see him in the flesh, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This passage is better known as the Great Commission. This commission is for Jesus' disciples, for his followers, for all of them, for Matthew and Mark, For Vince and Louise, for Thomas, for you and for me. When we look closer at the words in the Great Commission, there are four verbs, I believe that I've highlighted them in bold, four action words. But only one of the verbs is the driving force, the main verb with the other verbs functioning as supportive, like satellite actions. In grammar, we refer to that driving force as the imperative verb. The other verbs are supporting actions, called participles. In the original Greek text, the imperative verb in the Great Commission, the only imperative verb, is making disciples. You'll see the word in blue underneath in Greek. I'm not going to embarrass myself and try to pronounce it. The other verbs are there to add color, add texture, to making disciples. We are to go and make disciples. Wherever we go, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, make disciples. While you're making disciples, like we did last week, baptize them. While we're making disciples, teach them. Teach them so they understand and can obey God's commands. That's our mission. That's what we've been called to do. The question is, how do we do it, and how can we help each other do it? What does it mean to be a disciple? How can we participate in this great commission together? Be disciples, make disciples. You don't hear too much about disciples in the 21st century. It's not a common word. It's not something that we see in our everyday life. In the first century, the answer was pretty straightforward because disciples were everywhere. I'm not just talking about Jesus. Military leaders had disciples. Philosophers had disciples. Teachers had disciples. Rabbis had disciples. We collect followers on social media today. We do that, but all it takes to be a social media follower is hit, hit like and subscribe. It takes, it takes a little bit more to be a disciple. When we look at the scriptures, we see that it involves a combination of following, physically following, being in the presence of someone that you are to be a disciple of. It involves observing, listening as you follow. It involves learning and practicing, and it's not a one-time thing. It's it's a lifelong pursuit. Dallas Willard, he observed that while we cannot literally physically be with Jesus in the same way that his first disciples could walk with him, the key is to have their same priorities, their same intentions, their same inner heart attitudes. N.T. Wright wrote that being a disciple of Jesus requires not just Head learners and not just heart learners but life learners. I want to suggest that to be a disciple of Jesus we need to take part in the following four activities and I don't want to be super rigid or, or dogmatic about it but I, I want to suggest that there is a certain logical sequence to things an order to things that seems reasonable to me it kind of makes sense. The first activity is that a disciple must follow Jesus. I don't mean believe. Not yet. When Jesus first appeared to these uh, New Testament Jewish fishermen, the first thing he said to them was, follow me. He didn't make them pass a test. He didn't ask them a bunch of qualifying questions. He just said, follow me. So many examples of people's very first interactions with Jesus involved following him. Matthew chapters 4, 8, 9, 10, 16, you'll find again and again Jesus calling people to follow him. Tons of people followed him. Apostles followed him. Other disciples followed him. Crowds followed him all the time. Even Pharisees and teachers of the law followed him physically because they wanted to see and hear what he was up to. People in the first century literally and physically followed Jesus to listen and consider, contemplate what he was saying. So the question is, well, if we don't have that now, if we can't physically walk with Jesus that way, where can we go to see and hear and contemplate what Jesus has to say to us. The second thing is that a disciple must listen to Jesus. The Bible calls Jesus the word of God. And we must listen to that word in order to understand him and allow him to transform us. At Jesus' own baptism, recorded in Mark 9, it's written that a cloud appeared and covered the people, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The Gospels are full of references of Jesus telling anyone in earshot to listen what he has to say. Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. A disciple must believe in Jesus. Anybody can follow Jesus for a time. Anybody can listen to what he has to say by reading the Bible. But at some point, we all have to decide for ourselves whether we're going to believe that or not. We're not asked to know it all. We're not asked to explain it all or understand it all or even to have heard it all. But what we have heard, Jesus asks us to believe. If there's one book of the Bible that I would recommend about um, believing Jesus it would be the Gospel of John. There are almost 300 references to the word believe in the Gospel of John, more than all the other Gospels combined. The Apostle John finishes his book with this epilogue. He writes very explicitly in black and white that the whole point of his Gospel message that you and I have today is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And finally, a disciple must imitate Jesus. In John 14, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will do all the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Ephesians 5, verse 14, implores us to follow God's example and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This sounds like a tall order, and it is. Do you think the way that Jesus thinks? Do you love the way that Jesus loves? Do you forgive and sacrifice for other people the way that Jesus does? What a noble pursuit, though. What a noble pursuit. Jesus says in John chapter 20, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are My disciples, if you love one another. So at the most basic level, what is a disciple? I see this sequence of four activities that Scripture associates with being a disciple. Following Jesus, listening to Jesus, believing in Jesus, and imitating Jesus. The sequence isn't a hill that I'm prepared to die on, but it does seem reasonable to me that you can't reasonably imitate Jesus if you don't believe him in your heart. You can't reasonably imitate Jesus if you haven't heard what he's going to say, and you can't hear what he's going to say if you don't follow him. So we need to do those things. So what? I've talked a lot about discipleship in the last few minutes, and I just want to make sure that we connect this back with our passage today with the big idea that it contains. Remember that Acts 19 describes that growing societal impact that's happening as the gospel message spreads throughout the city of Ephesus. Remember that the gospel of Jesus is disrupting powers that influence the way that people think, the way that people make money. Remember that the blame for all this disruption is is placed at Paul's feet, but he's found blameless by the city's politicians. All Paul did was obey his mission to teach and preach and baptize. And remember that the Holy Spirit seems to have taken care of the rest by changing people's hearts from the inside until society started transforming from the outside. Remember that we also have a mission. We have the Great Commission to be disciples, to make disciples. And I believe that while we do that, we really have to believe and place our trust that God's Holy Spirit is working alongside us as we fulfill the Great Commission to change hearts through revival in the society that we're a part of. And that's how big things happen. This undertaking of discipleship must become our driving force in exactly the same way that Paul's mission to the Gentiles was his driving force. <sighs> this is the tough one. What is your driving force right now? To what do you dedicate the most time the most money, the most physical, mental, emotional energy, is it following and listening, believing in and imitating Jesus, or is it something else? As we let that soak in, that's a very sobering thought. And I can say that because that's exactly where I've come to in my life, is this conclusion that this is not the driving force of my life. I enjoy comfort, I enjoy fun, I enjoy recreation, I enjoy peace, and that's where all my energy and money goes. But I'd like it to be something else. Not because I have to, because I really want to. So take heart. If discipleship isn't your driving force yet, but you're like me and you'd like it to be, I think that Jesus has given us resources to help make that change. And we're going to look at these just as we wrap up now. One resource Jesus gives us is the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus promised that God the Father would send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name and teach us all things and remind us of everything that Jesus has said to us. That sounds to me like a good thing that I would need if I were to get serious about discipleship. Paul explains this so eloquently in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. He writes, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the own person within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Another resource Jesus has given is in this room. It's one another, other believers. We can't physically be with Jesus right now. One day we will be. But right now, we can be with, with physically with other people who want to be like him. Paul writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Who can you be an example to? Who's an example to you? As you consider this, I want to draw attention to the many RBC groups that take place during the week. They might call themselves small groups or home groups or fellowship groups or Bible study groups. I'd like us to start considering them discipleship groups because that's what happens when we participate in them. The time you spend meeting with people, reading with people, praying with people, being vulnerable with other people who believe in Jesus. That's where you're living out that continuous following, listening, believing, and imitating of discipleship. I think that's not the only place, but probably the first place where we will start making disciples is in small groups. Do you belong to a group like that at RBC or somewhere else? Would you like to? Could people in my small group put their hands up so that I can embarrass you? Steve and Nancy, I see you, Marco. That's great. I love my small group. I feel loved by them. I want you to experience that as well. There's a website behind me. If you aren't part of a discipleship group right now, make it a priority in your life to ask about them and see how you could join one. The last resource Jesus gives us is his everlasting, ongoing forgiveness and love, which we will need. In his book, Following Jesus, Biblical Reflections on Discipleship, N.T. Wright describes the relationship that Jesus had with his closest disciples. In the Gospel of Mark, a relationship that we too can enjoy. He writes, Mark invites us to stop projecting the guilt and fear we feel inside ourselves out onto the rest of the world. He invites us to take up our own cross and follow Jesus. He paints a tragically comical picture of the disciples blundering about, getting it all wrong, failing to see what Jesus was on about, and letting him down totally. And yet, he continues to show Jesus teaching them, loving them, leading them, and ultimately dying for them. This is where we start. If anyone reading this feels that he or she has blundered about, got it wrong, misunderstood Jesus, let him down totally, Mark has good news for him or her. This good news includes an invitation to Jesus' table, where you can leave the burden behind at the foot of the cross and receive new life, Jesus' life, to be your new reason for living. So be a disciple for Jesus. Help others become disciples for Jesus. Believe that the Holy Spirit of God is more than able to stir the hearts of men into revival in our communities, in our society, in our country as we do our part. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we ask for your spirit to be with us right now. The spirit that you promised us. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would bring to our minds not just the knowledge of Jesus, but the the understanding, the hunger and thirst, the desire for Jesus to be like him. Lord, we we thank you that in your wisdom, for some reason you've asked us to make disciples of other people. You, You can do it. You don't need us to do it. But Lord, how exciting it is that as we learn to be more like you, you ask us to help others do likewise. God, we love you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of men and women here at Rosemount Bible Church to be disciples, to follow you and listen to you, to believe in you and be like you. Help us to encourage one another to do likewise. Help us to do this in small groups. God, we, we love you. We ask